Totally Football Show. Today, looking inspired like two Russians on a road trip, that's Liverpool at Spurs. We look back on the Wembley win and ask the big questions like, should Michelle Vorm's parents have named him Luke? And further afield, will there ever be a child born who can score a goal better than Zlatan's against Toronto? And what are you most looking forward to in the Champions League this week? It's the Totally Football Show. In the pod today, it's hello, Ian Irving. Hello, James. Hello there. Ian is, of course, Northwest correspondent for Premier League TV. As you know, if you live in, I don't know, the Burkina Faso. Anywhere other than the UK, exactly. pretty much. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, good to have you with us. You, you, you arrived fresh from the Etihad. Yes. Of course. We've got the man who's gone rogue, Daniel Story. Good morning, James. Now, out peddling your story in a very real sense to, you know, anybody, really. Sh- shameless. A new level of shameless. Right. Yeah. Okay. And Sasha Gurionov, who's been busy touring the sites of Britain this weekend. With my mates. Left him outside today. You didn't go to Salisbury Cathedral, but you did go to a vicarage, Sasha. I did indeed. Aha. For uh, Watford Man United. Great game of football. Much better than the fair at Wembley. All right. Which you also saw. Yeah. Crikey. All right. Well, of course, Liverpool are one of uh, the two teams that are still off to a perfect start in the Premier League, Chelsea being the others. It's the first time that two teams have done that in a top-flight season since... 1908-1909 Since before those two Man City fans started going to their games. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But uh, Vimal Duvedi says, is Chelsea a bigger title challenger than Liverpool because they have a stronger bench and far better midfield and forward players? What do you think about that, Sasha? I think Chelsea are still work in progress. Um particularly defensively, mm. uh, particularly defensive midfield. Um, whereas if you look at Liverpool, I think they've sorted out their long-term defensive problems now and they have an excellent goalkeeper. Joe Gomez has really stepped up to the plate as well. So I think that base combined with the attacking threat, I think leaves Liverpool somewhat stronger than Chelsea at the moment. Daniel? I think the interesting thing for Chelsea is that we're used to this short-termist, huge fluctuation in performance between season to season where they have their off-seasons and they have their on-seasons. And often in their on-seasons, it's because they haven't had European football. Mm. This season, they have got European football. They've got the Europa League. They've got the worst kind of European football. Well, if Michel Sarri effectively sacrifices that competition, then that can obviously help. And what he's doing with Eden Hazard suggests that there's great things to come. Yeah, he's got very low expectations for Hazard this season. He only wants... Just the 40 goals, considering he's never scored over 20. But considering the managers he's been under for the majority of his time at Stamford Bridge have been Jose Mourinho and Antonio Conte, who've perhaps had a different demand of of Hazard compared to Sarri, it will be very interesting to see how he gets on. I'm excited to see what Mm. Eden Hazard can achieve this year. Yeah, playing alongside Giroud and under Sarri, it feels like we're going to kick, could potentially kick on to a whole new level in terms of his importance in the world of football. I think the really interesting thing about Chelsea this weekend is that they started Olivier Giroud over Alvaro Morata and I think that's probably the beginning of the end of Morata. Uh, Hazard, after the game, was at pains to say that Giroud was the best target man in the world and that he loves playing with him. And kind of as an afterthought said, but we have two good strikers so we can play with Alvaro as well. But that sounds to me like Alvaro is the backup striker at 57 million or whatever and having not scored enough goals ever you know, since his first month at Chelsea basically. 
I think if you're going to play with a non-scoring, non-target man striker, you might as well play with a target man and right. clearly gets the best out of Hazard. Defensively, wow. there's issues, though, certainly. I think you look at sort of the performances they've had so far, they've not looked that secure at the back, particularly against Arsenal, who's been the first sort of big team, top six team they've faced. Which is interesting because, of course, you know who's a free agent, who's available now. I don't know. Who's that? Mr. Chelsea. Um, because he didn't sign for Spartak Moscow. John Terry, what happened, Sasha? A lot of long faces in Moscow. Uh, on Saturday, well, 10 days ago, it was uh, it was thought that it's all done and dusted. Sport Express, the main Russian sports daily, went out on Monday saying, yes, Ch- John Terry has signed the contract. And then it seems he went home and had second thoughts. I mean, Spartak Moscow had the best men on the case. Uh, Marco Trabuki, uh, he's sort of one of the head honcho agents who worked with Spartak. He was in London. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, they said they've done all they can. And John Terry, um, it was up to him on Wednesday to decide. And John Terry decided against it. And Russians are gutted. So why did they announce it as though he had actually signed? I, th- I think it was a situation where it was agreed in principle, but right. it's in such a way that uh, Spartak were convinced, well, all he has to do is sign it. Maybe it was a question of more money, maybe family, maybe opportunities. And, and how much was local anger mollified by the uh, kind of letraset uh, announcement that John Terry put out on Instagram? <laughs> well, they were basically, there they were people, this is really unusual for Russia, but there were people monitoring a flight into Moscow. There were people hitting refresh on Twitter and then it was just utter shock but in such a way that it was too good to be true right I, um, I think John Terry how low the bar is in Russian football <laughs> it's not it's not just that he's a symbol he's a symbol of British of English football right and he uh, you know Premier League is watched quite a lot in Russia and uh-huh. he's seen as that old well, it's not a throwback but he is that beating heart of English football yeah it's a very old heart maybe yeah, it's going to stop soon but it's like back in the day when Rude Hullet rocked up yeah. in England isn't it it's that sort of mm. that sort of idea because we were or Gianluca exa- Vialli as well exactly yeah mm. we weren't exactly spoiled with these these names back then and we were all genuinely really quite excited to see these players despite them being in their sort of latter stages of their career perhaps and even for English players we don't see English players go abroad do we it's, it's very rare still to see English footballers playing away from these shores and I think this is a very important point because I mean we've had guys like Roberto Carlos in Russia before but I think Russian appreciation is that these players they would go abroad and play anywhere if you like whereas John Terry played in England this is the first time he's going to go abroad and this was really really important that we can attract he's him chosen Moscow he's like chosen Moscow yeah. for it chosen Spartak Moscow yeah. I mean this was, uh, it was extraordinary but there was a practical reason for it as well because Spartak are down to two decent defenders now and at the weekend they lost at home 2-1 and uh, there are problems in that squad they just sold the best creative player uh, Quincy Promise who went to Sevilla for 20 million euros and with that, the spark has gone. So Spartak are really quite struggling. Maybe, uh, it's maybe. the second promise they've lost out on in, in, the, in a week or so. <laughs> Sorry, Daniel. No, no, I can't be that. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, well, it, it, let's move on then because uh, we'll take a very quick pause and then we'll be back with the incredible Liverpool and that 2-1 win at Wembley that you didn't like that much, Sasha. Nope. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. All right. Football 365 announces this Monday Liverpool can win the Premier League. 4-1 they lost this fixture last time they went to Wembley to play Spurs. This time they very much looked like the team that would do the scoring of four goals, even Absolutely. though they didn't. As impressive from Liverpool as it was worrying for Tottenham, as you mentioned, 11 months ago, this was the game that highlighted the gap between these two teams and Liverpool fell to ninth in the league and Klopp faced those questions about you know, about his continued employment. Um They've moved in very different directions on the basis of, of Saturday lunchtime. Uh, I thought Tottenham were desperately poor, you know, individ- almost like Manchester United were against Tottenham. The system felt wrong, and also they made individual mistakes to to kind of double down on those 
on those errors. Really sloppy, weren't they? Yeah. Really sloppy. I well, mean, it was a narrow win. I mean, had, for example, his uh, Justin Bryant saying, had Loris played, he probably would have prevented both goals and Pochettino raising the issue of the, the penalty, which I think most people felt was a penalty was. on Son yeah, l- late yeah. on. But you had, the obviously, the goal in the first half from Liverpool as well, which, you know, if we're going to go into VAR and all that sort right. of stuff. I'm right in saying that would have been allowed. Yeah, I think the Firmino yeah. goal. Yeah. So, Wait, so okay, it's not even the result, out. but not the performance. No, the issue for me with Tottenham is I'm a bit worried about the way they're conceding attempts at goal, the way they're conceding shots, because traditionally, and this is, forget the goalkeeper for a moment, traditionally, this is one of Tottenham's strengths. On paper, they've arguably got the best defence still in the league. And in the last three matches, they've conceded 47 shots, 18 on target. Even in the game against Manchester United, which they won 3-0, they conceded 23 shots, five on target. Against Liverpool, 10 shots they conceded on target, which was the first time that's happened at home for Tottenham since January 2014 against Manchester City. And that is really uncharacteristic. And that, to me, suggests that it's far more than just a goalkeeper being out. That's the way the team's functioning defensively. All right. Is it also because the... the the fact that they keep bombing forward and on this weekend against one of the best counter-attacking sides around. Yeah, I think they've got a they've got a serious problem with with Harry Kane. Maybe a serious short-term problem, but it is a serious problem because if he isn't performing, they aren't. You know, the, it, it went the stat went round on on social media at the weekend about him completing nine passes, I think, in ninety minutes. But he's only had four shots on target this season, Kane. Wow. Um, for a man who who prides himself on his numbers and you know he's an excellent finisher. He's just not getting in front of goal. I think they've got an issue with Lucas Moura kind of almost playing as a second striker. And I saw, I, I forget which one it was, but a, kind of a Spurs fan account saying, we've kind of turned Harry Kane into Ricky Lambert with huh. Moura because he's playing as a, as so a target Moura's man. So Moura's coming into the team has affected the way Kane plays. Yeah, he's touching the ball a lot more. Um, Ericsson and Ali do their work around Kane, not not in his own his space. They allow Kane to have his space. And, and I think Kane's being a little bit shunted out by that. Um, and that's yeah, that's really harming Tottenham. And, and also, I think Kane is losing out a lot in comparison at the moment because um, I think on Saturday you could see Mora was the only really dynamic player uh, in the Spurs team. I mean, they had a very ponderous midfield, and any threat was basically coming from Mora bursting forward. I mean, including the shot that he had against the post. Uh, but at the same time, I think Liverpool actually stood up quite well to that threat, and particularly Joe Gomez uh, with two excellent challenges on Mora. Right, you were actually there, Sasha, yeah. at Wembley. Um, so, what picture did you draw of Liverpool? Jurgen Klopp afterwards describing it as their best performance so far. For 85 minutes. I mean, he said if they played 5% less, they, they, they would have lost the game. So I think Liverpool did have to be on it. But I found myself wondering midway through the second half, thinking this is quite boring uh, because Spurs were so abject. And every time Liverpool went forward, it looked like a chance would open up. I mean, I would even argue that if it weren't for Vorm and his experience standing up to some of those shots, mm-hmm. uh, it would have been a much worse result. I think, yes, Vorm did make the mistake uh, for the first goal and perhaps could have been more convincing on the second, but there were times where he really did keep them in the game. Right. And I think the only time that Spurs looked like coming alive was after they put on Son, after they put on Lamella, of course, at the expense of the gaps at the back, which Liverpool kept on exploiting, uh, but obviously not finishing. Um, and um, yeah, I think until those last few minutes when Liverpool got a little bit nervy um, and of course Lamella pulls the goal back, it was it was, it was actually quite dull because mm. Liverpool were so comfortable. Right. It's really, obviously, a really interesting comparison between Spurs and Liverpool's midfields at the moment because if, you'd have, if you hadn't looked at the league table and you'd have said that 
Genie Vinaldum and James Milner, their two best midfielders, you'd have worried about Naby Keita and Fabinho. And the competition for places, this new competition for places in Liverpool's midfield that has just pushed the performance level of everyone else around them up is exactly what Spurs are lacking. Mm. Um, there is too much subconscious complacency within that Spurs midfield that if they make a mistake or they play badly, not deliberately, but if that happens, there's really no one to step in and take their place. And also, um, after the game, Pochettino was being asked about you know what's gone wrong here, etc. And obviously he said, uh, I guess, Watford was a problem of attitude. And he said it wasn't a problem here on the day. But I felt there was a bit of that because Spurs were opened up twice in the first two minutes. And after that, I think they were just completely uncomfortable. And it wasn't that they weren't motivated, but I think they were incredibly nervous every time they had to do anything with the ball. They were incredibly nervous every time Liverpool got forward. And um, again, uh, the ball that was put in in the first minute was from James Milner. And I think he sort of set the tone. If you had to pick an unsung hero... Of, of this Liverpool side or a sung hero who would be your, your star man would it be James Milner at the moment it would be Joe Gomez Joe Gomez because he stepped in um, to play his favourite centre back role after all the odd uncertainty of a lover and after the World Cup and then he turned out he came back injured um, and I think Gomez has learned really well of Van Dijk and I think yeah last couple of games I think Gomez has looked more impressive of the two which is incredible I think Brilliant. that opens up uh, we were talking about it before we came in here about the effect of the latter stage of the World Cup and seven of Tottenham's players being involved who started at the weekend involved right to the end of that World Cup. Just to take a sort of alternative view of that, let's look at the Liverpool team. So of that Liverpool side, the first pre-season friendly, which was a 7-0 win on July the 7th, four of the players who started were involved in that game. That was Joe Gomez, Andrew Robertson, James Milner and Naby Keita. By the 14th of July, you can have Virgil van Dijk to that list. Mm -hmm. Joel Matip, Daniel Sturridge, who came off the bench at the weekend, they'd also played by the 14th of July. They've had a full pre-season. I think that is a major reason why Liverpool have made such a bright start to this season. Right, which Spurs haven't, presumably. Exactly, yeah, because some of those players were only just getting back from the World Cup yeah. by that point. Some of them were still there. Okay. I think perhaps it's not just a question of fitness. It's exactly this. It's training together and working on something together, which Spurs haven't had. And also, I quite like the fact that um, uh, Wijnaldum finally scored away in the Premier League. His previous goal uh, was also away against Alisson in Rome. Ah. Also a header from a corner. Excellent. Now, um, you mentioned, uh, Ian, previously that uh, Liverpool have a very tasty-looking clash with PSG coming up. PSG, who arrested the likes of Mbappé and Neymar at the weekend, but still beat Saint-Étienne 4-0. Oh, is Firmino going to be okay after getting Apparently so. They said um, Saturday night there was information that he he got uh, an abrasion. He had it checked out, but it looked brutal. I I I thought he had an injured soul, actually, to be honest. (laughs) He reached that deep inside his his head. His his soul's actually damaged and he's a doubt for the PSG game as a result of that, I believe. That's quite dark. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, at, the t- at, the, at the time of the ground, uh, I, we d- I didn't understand what happened because I thought Firmino was getting forward, actually fouling uh, Vertonghen. And then you see the pictures after the game and finger in his head. Yeah, <laughs> That's not a phrase I'd ever thought I'd hear on a Monday morning. Finger in his head? Fingering in his head. No, I'm pretty sure we've had that before, actually. <laughs> uh, but anyway, PSG have won their first five and scored buckets, goals and the other. Uh, but meanwhile, Spurs, of course, are in Champions League action. And this is Tuesday afternoon, away at Inter. Inter back in the Champions League for the first time in eight years. Eight years and 11 managers later... And what a group they're in, because I mean, the other two teams there, Barcelona, who are mm-hmm. Barcelona, and PSV, mm-hmm. who I think have scored 13 goals in their last two matches. Seven away on at the weekend. Yeah, that's 13 goals in two matches. It's a lot Seven of goals. away at the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and admittedly, these are Eredivisie goals, but that's still, what, five or six in, in ordinary language. Uh, the good news for Tottenham is that, unlike Spurs, Inter did spend a bucket of money over the summer, mm. 
but they are still an absolute mess. Nangeland's come in, De Vrij at the back, Asama Vrsaliko from Croatia, but I think he's going to be injured. But I think it's watching them, it's all about who they didn't sign because they basically set up for Luka Modric to wander in and pick up the keys to the engine room or, 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 or that kind of thing. And he, he didn't he didn't arrive, perhaps not surprisingly, and they are completely without ideas. And they, they lost again this week uh, at home to newly promoted Palmer, pretty special goal from DeMarco, I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> on loan um, from Inter as well, which makes it from Inter, even that bit more painful. Um, Mario Icardi is kind of their Kane story in that he hasn't as yet managed to find a, the net this season, but traditionally he does a lot, 29 times last season. Um, you know, it might be that they suddenly spring to life, but I think this could be a good fixture for Spurs. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, now, there's loads of other great Champions League action to look forward to, loads of other incredible stories to look back on from the weekend. We'll get on to the next of those. How about a bit of West Ham after this? In the latest edition of the Bradley Wiggins podcast by Eurosport, Sir Brad and the team discuss Simon Yates' historic victory in La Vuelta, España, making a clean sweep for Britain in the Grand Tours. Had he gone to Sky back when, you know, he got up there in the Tour, yeah. I don't think he would have won the Vuelta. No, I don't think... I yeah, think a few years like a ago, sliding yeah. sliding doors moment, whether his career would have gone this path where he just fell into the kind of... Yeah, I don't think working. he would have, yeah. I think he'd have been just made into like Chiato is now, yeah. you know, just one yeah. of those guys that pulls super hard on the front. So by nature, the fact that Sky wouldn't take Adam on as well, they they come as one package that he, uh, you know, has ended up having a great team, found a great team and won a Grand Tour at 26. That's the Bradley Wiggins podcast by Eurosport. Search for it wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. Hey, listener, just seven more sleeps, depending on your nap schedule, of course, until you can see me, Michael Cox and Duncan Alexander and James Horncastle at the Queen Elizabeth Hall at the South Bank. That's uh, Totally Football Live on Monday, 24th of September, southbankcentre.co.uk for details. 18 sleeps more or less, until Friday the 5th of October. Daniel, when you'll be joining me, James Horncastle, and the New York Times, Rory Smith, at the Royal Northern College of Music. That's exciting, isn't it? It really is exciting, yes. That's in Manchester, Ian. Mm. Are you coming along? I've not been invited. Well, so. you can come along. <laughs> I'm not precious. Ctickets.com <laughs> if we forget to invite you. Uh, Jamie Lear says... I only listen to Tuesday's show when West Ham wins. So making a belated debut this season, make it West Ham heavy. Boom, Jamie Lear. Hammer time. Hammer time. All right. I feel very West Ham this week because I saw Green Street during the week. Have you ever watched Green Street? I avoided it. I have had the pleasure, yes. It's an extraordinary bit of movie making. It's like a piece of uh, modern art, mate, isn't it? It is, very much so. Yeah, mate. I think I'd call it... A lack of self-awareness, maybe. Or... Well, there's a lot of things you could call it. <laughs> Is that the one with the Hobbit? Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. But he's not the issue with it. He's one of the issues. Yeah. I feel like he's been stitched up a little bit yeah, by no. the process. But there's there's a couple of other things that are just mind-boggling. I think I think we might have to do a <laughs> podcast about football films because it's a it's mm. just a bizarre. It's an arcane kind of area of the... Of, anyway, uh, now, sorry, Jamie Lear, back to you with West Ham. Because West Ham, bottom of the table, yet to win a point, booed off at home to Wolves the previous weekend. They only went to Goodison and looked the business. Yeah, they Manuel Pellegrini switched to a 4-3-3. I said on this podcast a couple of weeks ago that I was really worried about their central midfield and playing an extra player seemed the obvious 
plan and Pellegrini obviously only the, over the international fortnight did that he picked Declan Rice and Pedro Obiang um, with Mark Noble uh, and Obiang had kind of license to push forward and Rice sat back and Mark Noble did Mark Noble things and there they were miles better than Everton in that first half Everton r- kind of lost the game twice they conceded the first goal and then panicked and thought you know, played as if it was the last five minutes. We need to get a goal straight back. Mm. And in doing so, conceded again by just getting picked off on the break. Um, they've got big problems. But yeah, West Ham were, were really good. Andrei Yarmolenko with the the Iron Robin idea of everyone knows what I'm going to do and yet you still can't stop me, which yeah. was, was lovely. Right. It was very Everton for Yarmolenko to not only score his first Premier League goal at Goodison Park, but also then get a second, a as, second well, as well. Considering he's been forever linked with a move to Everton. Ab- absolutely. Very Everton. Is this, is this performance from West Ham, is this something we can look for from West Ham and Yarmolenko? Is it the blueprint for a, a, a revival or a resurgence, or was it just a, a bad day from the Toffees? I think they certainly looked more competent going forward, and Yarmolenko was obviously a... Um, a Sorry, and did a, you just say that again? Yarmolenko. That's how we should be saying it. Yarmolenko. 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 Not Yarmolenko, Yarmolenko. It's the... Um, Yarmolenko. You're stressing the second syllable as opposed yeah. to the third. Yarmolenko. So Yarmolenko... Um, should we go back and do the whole part again? That'll <laughs> sound brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so Yarmolenko was um, a little unlucky uh, in, in Dortmund last season because when he first started out, he was like kicker's top 10 and he picked up an injury at the wrong time. The basic Dortmund went off the rails somewhat and um, so he, he, he fell out. But... I think he wanted to move uh, in the summer, obviously, and England was his priority, so he got his move. Um, I mean, if he would have been looking at the first few games at West Ham, I think he would have been thinking, yeah, I'm going to get my chance here. And now that he has, and it was something that perhaps caught uh, Marco Silva slightly, or slightly unexpected. And, um, I mean, we'll see, we'll see how much longer on he gets in the side, but he's certainly a very competent, hard-working player. Mm. Uh, if he manages to stay injury-free, I mean, he has had a few back problems and things like that. But if he's looked after, I think you could see that he combined very well with Arnautovic, basically. Right, I was going to ask, because we, we talked about the relationship, mm. the budding on-field relationship between uh, Giroud and Hazard. But it seemed like these two worked pretty yes. well. West Ham's performance wasn't perfect by any stretch. But to see that sort of relationship building up, Felipe Anderson as well, who was pretty impressive at times, away at Arsenal as well, on the break... Um, and then obviously adding in Yarmolenko. Yarmolenko. <laughs> Yarmolenko. Um, with Arnautovic as well, who's an absolute, an absolute hero of mine, to be fair. I just really enjoyed that. A stat you'll be aware of then, Ian, since the start of 2018. Only Mo Salah's had a hand in more Premier League goals than Arnautovic. Or Arnautovic. Arnautovic? Arnautovic. Okay. That's Neither, <laughs> it would seem. Marco. Nine, Marco, nine, nine goals and seven assists. Yeah. Mm. David Moyes was on, uh, was on Sky talking about uh, Arnautovic and the way in which he sort of acknowledged in training pretty quickly that he should be playing up front, uh, the types of runs he was making, the way he was holding the ball up, um, just the characteristics he was bringing to his training sessions. He, he sort of saw... Um, a good use in Arnautovic being moved up front, and actually, you, you know, it's been a it's been a genius move um, to to put him in that position because he now looks very much like a a Premier League centre forward. Season starts here for West Ham, Daniel. I was just going to say that I mean Everton have got serious problems at both ends of the pitch. Marco Silva is not known as a, a defensive coach; hasn't kept a clean sheet in sixteen Premier League games now at Watford and Everton. Um, they've got a, a young defence that is struggling to combine with each other at the moment and isn't being protected from midfield. Morgan Schneiderlin was taken off after 40 minutes yesterday. But up front as well, they've, they've, last season, Everton's big problem is they had a huge collection of number 10s 
over the summer, they, they look to rectify that. And actually, I think they've just changed the problem. They've now got a huge collection of wide forwards. They've got Theo Walcott, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Adamola Luckman, Richarlison, Bernard, and then they've only got Cenk Tosin as a, a centre-forward mm. or Umar Yass on the bench. Mm. And Tosin looks completely out of form. Almost, dare I say it, Christian Benteke-esque in that he's working hard, but just nothing is coming off. And that's, that's not going to change until January, I don't see, because... All they've got is loads of options on either side of him and nothing in the middle. I, right. I think it'll end up with Richarlison up front. I mean, he played that role for Brazil last week and scored two goals against El Salvador and he seems to have the intelligence to be able to move in and out of those positions quite freely as well. So I think maybe if, if Tosin does continue to struggle, uh, that he'll be moved inside. My major issue with Marco Silva was in defence because he had so many issues going into that match it was something like double figures the number of players missing through injury and suspension so most of the team picked itself but one of the major decisions I saw him having was at left back because it's a really makeshift defence it's a defence that's never played together before Kenny, Zuma, Holgate and Dean and they had Leighton Baines sat on the bench now for me Maybe Dean is better than Baines. Maybe right. that's the judgment that he's making. But he's certainly not more experienced. And I can't see how naming Leighton Baines as a left-back to support Holgate, to support Zuma, to support Kenny mm. would actually not help Everton defensively. It's a big question here. And we did promise a West Ham-heavy section. So can I, can I finish off by saying, can West Ham do Chelsea next weekend? No. Okay. They've got really tough games coming up West Ham though. That that result really important for Pellegrini considering the pressure he was already already under because the next games for Chelsea in the Premier League sorry, the next games for West Ham in the Premier League mm. are Chelsea at home, Manchester United at home, Brighton away, not as tricky, but it's still Brighton away, Tottenham at home, right. Leicester away. And Macclesfield, I think, is in there. Mm. In the League Cup, yeah, in they the were the Cup. next Premier League games. Yeah. I see. Lines up to hit it, and yes, it's deflected for a corner. That's over 12 corners. Yes, <coughs> no time to take it though. It's finished nil nil. What a result! Sorry, our fault. You see, with same game multi bets from Paddy Power, you can combine multiple selections from one match into one bet, and you'll get money back as a free bet if one leg of your fourfold same game multi bet lets you down. Paddy Power, enough of the nonsense. Applies to pre match fourfold same game multi bets on UK and top European leagues. Max free bet £10 per customer per day, minimum odds. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus On Spotify, smart speaker, and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Let's talk a little bit more about Europe, listener. Are you excited? I know I am. Chelsea have to wait until Thursday before they can uh, get their European campaign underway. That's in the Europa League, of course. They're taking on Pauk. We mentioned last week, Pauk uh, run by Guntoten Ivan Savidis, who's a big pal of uh, Vladimir Putin's. Is that right, Sasha? Not sure how much they're pals now because Savidis has sold up. He sold oh, his he? tobacco firm um, back in March for, I think, like a billion dollars. Oh. So he's literally loaded now. Very nice, Sasha. <laughs> Thank you. Um, he's, uh, he took great delight in knocking out Spartak Moscow in the previous round because back in the day, back in the Soviet days, he was a bit of a Dynamo Kiev fan. Uh-huh. So for him, Dynamo Kiev, Spartak, big rivalry. So he took great delight uh, in humiliating Spartak. But in terms of what can they do against Chelsea, um, Pauk aren't great. They're no? really quite a mediocre side. They got spanked by Benfica uh, in the qualifying for the cha- last qualifying round for the Champions League. So I don't really think see Chelsea will have much problems there, unless of course they rotate heavily, which they could do. It's possible, isn't it? In the Champions League, meanwhile, Tuesday and Wednesday, all sorts of exciting games. As you've noticed, interspersed early on Tuesday with Barcelona against PSV. On the other side, Liverpool PSG in that same group. 
Red Star taking on Napoli. How do you say Red Star, Sasha? Cervena Zvezda. Cervena Zvezda. Okay. Red Star. <laughs> exact translation. <laughs> All right. Uh, Monaco, who are having an absolute shocker. I don't know if you've seen what's mm, happening with yeah. them. They're down in 15th in League 1. Um, anyway, they're hosting Atletico Madrid. Roma have an interesting trip to the Bernabeu to take on Real Madrid. Real Madrid drew 1-1 at Bilbao. In quite a spectacular game this weekend. Roma, meanwhile, were facing bottom of the table, Chievo, went 2-0 up and then conceded 2 to draw 2-2 with Steven Unzonzi picking, uh, incurring the wrath of the fans. Uh, and the question, I guess, if you concede like that to the Flying Donkeys, what's going to happen against uh, Gareth Bale and company? Elsewhere, Benfica take on Bayern and Bruges play Dortmund. Oh, Jaden Sancho getting two assists for, for Dortmund in their win over Frankfurt at the weekend. The other young English player in, or another young English player in the Bundesliga, Reese Nelson, who's uh, uh, with Hoffenheim on loan from Arsenal, scored on his debut for the half as they lost 2-1 at Dusseldorf. Well done to them anyway. Uh, speaking of young boys, though, mm. neat little segue here. That Swiss, you know, the, um, the so-called... no. Is that, uh, anyway, speaking of young boys in football, the Swiss team of that name Swiss champions no less ah yes are hosting Man United that's exciting isn't it yeah it'd be interesting um, they're eight points clear after six matches in Switzerland in the Swiss league already yeah. so they're in some form actually at the weekend though they needed added on time at the end of extra time to be FC Schaffhausen I hope I pronounced that correctly right this is a cup game this is in the Swiss cup mm. yeah um, and they're sixth in the Challenge League in Switzerland. Okay. Um, actually, it's quite interesting that the lineup um, five changes from their last league game, so not that many changes. So they actually it's quite re- a lot of changes, in, isn't it? Well, five, but they refrained from maybe playing their young boys. Oh, which see. is quite interesting, isn't it? I suppose so. Perhaps not. Um, <laughs> let's see if we can do any better with Man United's uh, recent trip to Watford, in which they were two-one uh, winners. Uh, at Vicarage Road, uh, to the sound of Emma Saunders doing all the announcing. How was Emma on the on the mic? Loud and clear. All right, because you what you went to this, you mentioned yes. Sasha, right? And I enjoyed it much more than the game at Wembley, uh, just because the momentum changed. Uh, I thought Watford were pretty good for the first half an hour. I had like Will Hughes doing Zidane turns before shooting, and I thought they looked quite confident. But once United got the first goal. Just Watford just looked really wobbly, and they were completely on the ropes. And by the end of the half, they couldn't even get out beyond maybe about 30, 40 yards. So this is what Javi Grassi said to them at halftime, and you could see from the first 10, 15 seconds of the second half, just get forward, just squeeze them up. And somehow United, as again Mourinho alluded to after the game, sort of lost that momentum, and uh, Watford pull a goal back, and suddenly there's a game on. Yeah. Um, and I thought um, this Watford team, like the 4-4-2 really reminds me of the Kiki Sanchez-Flores 4-4-2. Uh, about three years ago. And in fact, the spine of that team is still here because you've got Cathcart, Capu and Dini. And very much sort of Dini and Cathcart were coming off at halftime having like quite a deep chat, what we're going to do about this. So there are senior pros in the spine of this team, which is quite interesting because, say, for example, at Rubin Kazan in Russia, Javi Gracia really didn't get on with his senior pros. And mm. I think here, maybe, of course, different type of players, different type of environment, but I think he's got guys like Dini on side. And Dini was speaking quite a lot last week, as he tends to do, um, and what he did really enjoy, like, for example, 
he feels like he's involved again because I got the sense that under Mazzari he was completely excluded. But here we have Dini and basically we have the team on side with Javi Gracia. They're clearly enjoying playing for him. They were listening to his instructions and there was a really good dynamic there. Mm. But having said that as well, all the trouble about United, uh, Mourinho, etc. Our seats are right next to the away bench um, at Watford. You know, he looked pretty serene. He looked pretty happy with what was going on. Mm. Uh, and of course, at the end, slightly odd for United manager to say, but you know, he really praised the commitment and you know, this Lukaku charge back on the 89th minute to tackle uh, the Watford left back. You know, he thundered past me, and yeah, it looked very impressive. But it's, I think, it's as um, as you were, Ian, were saying before the pod, it's very Mourinho to sort of praise that aspect of the game. Right. Yeah, yeah. Where uh, I'm sure he had nice words for Chris Smalling, but not for his haircut. Chris Smalling with that fabulous, fabulous goal. A nice stat. Ian, did you see this about Chris Smalling? He has uh, won every single game he scored in in the Premier League, whether for Fulham or United. Every time he scored, his team has always won, and that's 11 matches now, which has equaled the Premier League record, which was previously held by Ryan Barbel. What does it mean? I don't know. <laughs> but I am curious to know, what, what do you think about... You know, when United in Switzerland, I always think of Basel and, yeah, and yeah. problems. Um, yeah, they have had issues there in the past, certainly. But like Sasha was saying there, I think they look a bit better now, United. They look a bit more like Mourinho stumbled upon um, a formation and a system that seems to be bringing the best out of their attacking talents and also covering up some of the deficiencies that they have in defence as well. I think playing Fellaini deep and Matic alongside him as well has really actually cured some of the issues that they had uh, in these games against Burnley and Watford. And also, (laughs) it's like the biggest cliche at United, isn't it? It's freed up Paul Pogba as well to go and do what he does and um, at times in that game he, he was really great he was, he? he was pulling the strings he was he was doing all the things that you'd want him to do it wasn't a complete 90 minute performance from him um, by any stretch but at times you sort of saw we're still talking about potential with Pogba aren't we but you sort of saw the potential of, of how dominant he can be in football matches Lukaku was great uh, Alexis Sanchez it's still not quite there is it but you know, I think this system has the potential to get the best out of the attacking players in the team because Jesse Lingard really covers up for a lot of the a lot of the attacking players who are not doing quite enough work. There was a moment actually uh, at the start of the second half, Pogba blasted the shot over, but Mourinho really made the point of getting up and applauding him because he found that little pocket of space and he basically created this, the the chance for himself, and which I think Mourinho really appreciated. One thing which I found quite interesting, and this is again something you can see at Watford because it's so close to the pitch, the only person in United in the United team that does all the you know direction and pointing and talking to people on the pitch seems to be Nemanja Matic um which um which 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 makes me think okay different well, he's going to be suspended for the next game exactly uh but at the same time it's United used to but back in you know 90s and early noughties so many big personalities who would direct the play on the pitch and mm. here for me it's sort of quite hard to see just really the one player doing that Sash just on the subject of stadium announcing I understand you've been doing a little bit of that yourself well, about 22 years ago, James. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, but you have a, an anecdote about stadium announcements. Uh, Euro 96. Um, oh, did you? Yeah, it's, uh, I, was, I was 15. I just finished my GCSEs. And um, because Russia were playing in the Northwest, right. uh, they advertised for volunteers, including Russian-speaking, Czech-speaking, Italian and Germans, obviously, who were in Liverpool and Manchester. And they put me on standby for the match at Old Trafford, Russia-Germany, because the guy who was supposed to be doing it was late for the first game. Uh-huh. And lo and behold, he was late for the second game. So they pulled me on the pitch about... 10 minutes before oh, you had to go out on the pitch yeah on, on the pitch so I'm next to the German announcer and this is something that um, 
triggered the memory when Emma was talking on Thursday about you know how the Germans announced the first right. name and they shout out the second name. So I'm standing there shaking. And the German guy did his stuff. I was like, okay, I, I'll um, I'll do the name and then they'll shout out the name to me. And I'm standing in front of the Russian and I'm going, in goal number one, Dmitry. Complete silence. Right. <laughs> I'm shaking, sweating, and nearly crying. So then I had to readjust to do the usual name, surname. But there was a moment, you know, when you just want the earth to open up and uh, not be there. And that was my most frightening moment to talk oh, about. Sasha. It. And then they kept me on for um, Russia, Czech Republic at Anfield. Okay. Uh, so there is actually a little clip somewhere of Vladimir Bischasny scored with five minutes to go in front of the cop end. Uh-huh. And you could hear this sort of boy in the background screaming. The goal for. Third goal for Russia was scored by Vladimir Vichasnik, and that's me. More young boys in football. There you go. There you go. Hey, uh, let's do the Daniel story link now from young boys to old ladies, because they're in. That made it sound like a slight on my character, which I liked. The Daniel story link from young boys to old ladies. Yeah, because you made that joke. (laughs) Oh, I know, but first-time listeners will think, what's he been doing in his private life? (laughs) Right. No, no. This is what freelancing means. (laughs) Juve... Played second in the class Sassuolo at the weekend. And the big news is that Cristiano Ronaldo scored and then he got a second and then he spent the rest of the game wrapped in that kind of existential angst which envelops him whenever he can't score. He basically just contrived to miss chance after chance. Sassuolo got one back, but Juve got the three points. But the other big talking point in this game was Douglas Costa, who I can only imagine wanted a weekend off because, first of all, he unleashed a fairly savage elbow on Eusebio Di Francesco's son, Federico Di Francesco, who plays for Sassuolo. But then, because that wasn't sanctioned, he literally, under the referee's nose, headbutted uh, Di Francesco, or did the you know head-forward thing, but right, just literally in front of the referee. And when that only drew a yellow, he then got into Mate a tete-a-tete sure. with Di Francesco. And when Di Francesco was making some, like, opened his mouth to make some point, Costa spits into it. Mm. It's horrible. Not the most offensive thing that's ever been swallowed from Costa. Very nice, Ian, although I'm not sure this is the occasion for jokes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Nobody likes this kind of thing. A serious business. Um, Juve will be taking on Valencia away, actually. This uh, midweek, Valencia drew 0-0 with Real Betis, if you're a fan of knowing what happened at the weekend. Man City, also in action in the Champions League. They host Lyon. Also in that group, Shakhtar taking on Hoffenheim. A Man City won three 0 against Fulham, and you were there. What should we know about this game? We can move on if, if you know, if it was all fairly cut and dried. City and Fulham just turned up, and City beat Fulham three 0 But the most interesting thing by far about this football match was the City mascots. You were okay. talking about old ladies, the old lady before ah. we had two very special old ladies at the Etihad Stadium. Vera one hundred and two. Olga, 98. Season ticket holders, uh, both of them, the sisters, since 1930. Uh, And just to see those two sat on the chairs in the tunnel waiting for the players to line up so they could join them was was quite special. Uh, Vera, who was the eldest, uh, was the first one out, held David Silva's hand, who she said before was a favourite player. Really? And just as they were... like ever? No, no, in the current 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 team. Did they talk about their kind of... They're all-time favourites at all. Uh, Colin Bell, I think, really? she said was a favourite, yeah. But um, David Silva, one of the, the current players who, who she really likes, holding his hand to walk out. And I just caught a, a, a really small section of the conversation which went along the lines of Vera to David. Uh, David, you need to make sure you score some goals today, OK? And then David just sort of laughing along and saying, yeah, yeah, of course, no problem. Um, and then she, they went out onto the pitch. Vera came back then, grabbed a word with Pep Guardiola as well. 
um, which is later sort of talking to the BBC, said that uh, she just wanted to thank him for what he'd done at Manchester City. But just a really heartwarming sight right. to see these they've, two. They've seen history made, haven't they? they they've seen, we were saying before, they probably saw Bert Troutman yeah. break his neck. Yeah, the season ticket holders, whether they went to all the cup matches as well, I'm not oh, sure. That's true. But um, yeah, but a lot has been said in the last sort of fortnight about 10 years of Manchester City since the Abu Dhabi takeover and all the changes. But I mean, what they must have seen down the years is, is incredible at City. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And did you know, big stat here, in the five games that Fulham have played this season, they've won four different kits? Wow. Patrick Evans wants to know is there a technical explanation? As to why the majority of Manchester City goals seem to be passes across goal for a simple tap-in, e.g. Sterling and Sane on Saturday. Daniel? Yes, that's that's how Pep Guardiola wants to create chances. He believes that's the best way of... Um, the easiest way of scoring goals. City effectively try and attack in two ways. One is to win possession high up the pitch and create overlaps with, um, with midfielders. And the second is to do this ticka-taka-style quick short passing Pep Guardiola will say it's all about juego de posición, which is I doubt he would, but. effectively about creating spaces. <laughs> and we, the term half spaces is used, but it's basically about David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne finding space in between the defensive line and the midfield line. Right. And therefore in the best position to receive the ball that allows an attack to be sped up, but without causing that attack. It's what they call down. Rams doitering in some countries, isn't it? it? I don't think it is, but yes. Isn't it? No. Rams doitering, that's, that's, that's exploring Thomas space, Muller. No, yeah. that's Thomas Muller being in the right place at the right time I to score. I thought that was exploring space. Mm. Oh. <laughs> well, he's the space in investigator, isn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah. But that's in, in the six-yard box, I think. He's Raheem Sterling. Raheem right. Sterling is Manchester Ram City's Rams Sterling, in his yeah. case, of course. Mm. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> let's move on. So lost right now. <laughs> You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsors of Melchester Rovers. Find out more at RoyTheRoversOfficial.com. Football League news. Leeds stay top of the championship, but Tony Pulis, subject of that amazing song at the end of last week's show by Goldie Looking Chain, saw his borough side lose for the first time this season at Norwich. Also in that division, Frank Lampard was sent off as Derby lost at Rotherham in League One. Blackpool's Mark Bowler and Donovan Daniels were sent off as fighting each other in Blackpool's 1-0 League One victory at Bottomside Plymouth. So you can find out more of this kind of thing with Caroline Barker and the Totally Football League show gang. That's on Tuesday. Totally Scottish Football Show will be returning this week after the international break. They'll be talking a lot about Hearts going five points clear at the top of the Scottish Premier League. Right now, let's talk a lot more about this. Uh-uh, that's Elias featuring Franz, who's the man? And the man is Zlatan. Game of the weekend in MLS and possibly anywhere in the world. Toronto taking on uh, Los Angeles Galaxy and Zlatan scoring his 500th career goal with a roundhouse kick, but a roundhouse kick with the wrong foot, Ian. I don't even think that does it justice. It was like part MMA, part ballet. It was a reverse roundhouse with a pirouette. Because it's the wrong foot. He uses the outside of his yeah. boot to do it. No one else ever will have even contemplated trying it, let alone trying it or 
actually executing it for your 500th goal as well. Yeah. That, it just stinks of Zlatan, that, doesn't it? It was his 17th goal, in in 18 matches since moving to MLS. Afterwards, he said, I'm happy for Toronto because they'll be remembered as my 500th victim. And then post, posed for a picture with a scepter and a caption, God of goals. And his team lost 5-3. But it was an incredible comeback. Basically, this game started with Toronto being on a rotten run, just running past Ashley Cole, the LA left-back, at will. I say left-back, but spectator for most of this. First Victor Vasquez, then Altidore, then Jovinko found room past him or assists flying in past him. And, and uh, Toronto cruising three minutes before half-time. Then this from Zlatan. Here's Dos Santos. Lifts it into the area. Ibra! was absolutely fantastic. Holy! Oh, my and Lord. then Kamara makes it 3-2, and then on an assist from Ashley Cole, LA pull it back to 3-3 before Toronto find two more goals and win 5-3. And what was clearly a bonkers game, MLS themselves call it the greatest goal in MLS history, Zlatan's latest effort. The only one that's a contender, they say, is this. Kamara throwing his body in, it's going to fall for Ibrahimovic! Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Uh, which is, uh, to be fair, the only thing you could say, really. That was uh, Zlatan's debut goal for, for Galaxy, Sasha. Which I believe they were 3-0 down in that game as well. Yeah, I think they might have been. In the, in the El Trafico against LAFC, a spectacular 45-yard volley. Mentioned for yep. Wayne Rooney as well. He oh. also scored again Did he? Um, for DC United in a three-all draw with New York Red Bulls featuring a hat-trick for the Red Bulls by Bradley Wright Phillips oh. in a match you just said there about the match of the weekend. Well, this game is second best, but it was still described as nutty, manic, jaw-dropping and agonising by the New York Times. Uh, there's still four points off the playoffs, DC United, but you probably talked about it before, Rooney. When he went there, there were five mm. points adrift at the bottom and now they're four points off the playoffs with a game in hand in the space of 14 matches. Ooh. The momentum of the two clubs, DC United and LA Galaxy, is very, oh. very different. Obviously, DC getting closer to the playoffs, whereas I think um, LA Galaxy are now without a win in seven games. They're six points off playoff or like five to play. It pretty so, much ended yeah, their yeah, hopes. Yeah, yeah exactly. The it's actually yeah. a terrible result because Toronto haven't been great this season either. Wow. Okay, a little bit of perspective there. We need a totally MLS show. Right. Hey, great other goals. Thanks to AD who mentions Pavel Mamayev's ridiculous uh, Rabona for Krasnodar at Angie. Have I said those names right? Great. And uh, a lot of people excited as well about Payet's goal against Gangon. Did you see that one? Yeah, the keeper should have saved it. Yeah. What? Yeah, oh. lovely technique, but it's not a great piece of goal. You like Florent of Tovin's goal in that game? Yeah, it's a better goal. That's why there's okay. a lot. There's more parts to it. I think um, this, the first touch is brilliant. He loops it over the defender, and then almost a carbon copy of Yarmolenko's goal with a curl around the the goalkeeper and curl around the defender. Michael Cox of this parish tweeted last night to say that he liked the goal, but when a goalkeeper gets a touch on the ball, uh -huh. it always takes away from it. And I absolutely agree. I with agree that. as well. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's talk about Arsenal then, if you going to be like that. Arsenal 1-2-1 <laughs> at Newcastle ahead of uh, their clash with the Ukrainian side Sasha Vorskla. Vorskla Poltava. Okay, what should we know about them? Oh, they are uh, 
I've, I've, I've got some information on them. Uh, they're like a band of brothers. I'm going to sit back. <laughs> it's got a I'll, I'll, down. You're kidding. I've got like three lines. Right. Um, they're a bit like band of brothers. They're very sort of hard-nosed side, a bit of Champions League experience there. Uh, they were deservedly third last season um, because head-to-head they beat Zarya Luhansk 2-0 and 3-0 to finish up there. Fourth this year. Um, and Poltava, um, if I may... Ukrainian listeners, is actually a very important place in Russian history because in 1709, Peter the Great's Russian army defeated Charles XII, which was the end of Sweden and it kind of marked the rise of Russian Empire as a you know, proper force to be reckoned with. And apparently the, uh, the owners, uh, so I think they're, being owned, they, uh, they're, they're, they're owned by a bank and a lot of the owners are based in London. So for them, this is like a dream fixture. Good. That's nice then. Well, we'll see how much of a dream and how much of a nightmare it turns out to be against an Arsenal side that is fresh from a 2-1 win up at uh, the Oostwar St. James's Park. That's their third win in a row. Things beginning to take shape there for Unai Emery. Let's have a quick mention for Bournemouth. Those cherries, they're fifth. Who's a big Eddie Howe fan? Daniel's a big Eddie Howe fan. Why, Daniel? I think he's the most overachieving manager in the Premier League. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. He. I, I think there's a danger with, with English managers, and I'm not going to go all Richard Keyes here, but there's a danger with British managers of... of not allowing them, their overachievement becomes normalised. If he was called Eddie Porquet, that's would be exact, all over Exactly, him. that's exactly what I don't want to say. But, yeah, I think we, we've normalised his brilliance. They finished ninth and 12th in the last two seasons. They're fifth now. Um, that the, the squad they had out on Saturday, the 18-man squad, played 260 games in the Championship in four years ago for that club, and they're all still there. So we have this thing about British managers that they struggle to improve players, but he does it. And the, also, the, the nice thing about Howe in terms of big club is that his weakness is, he will say it himself, is buying players. Right. So, and he would, th- he would consider himself perfect for that kind of sporter, director, head coach model that most of the big clubs want to use anyway. Right. Well, that's why they've got the excellent Richard Hughes as their uh, head of recruitment. Absolutely, yeah. At uh, the Vitality Stadium, which is a bit of a fortress. They've only lost once in their last 13 mm. matches there. Ryan Fraser grabbing the headlines this time with with a brace and he's one of those he's players he you know in he came to bournemouth he started out there how put him out of the team because he said he was too big said he need to work harder and Fraser did an interview a couple of months ago where he said you know this is our pep guardiola he's so meticulous he improves us every single day every single day we learn something and then we go out on the pitch and he also has given us the confidence to do it on the pitch mm. and I, I think he is ready for a a big job now. Although it'd be a shame to see him leave. Yes, it would be. It would be. Th- this game was so entertaining. What did he finish? 4 2? 4 2, yeah. Right. But it was a, for all intents and purposes, it was a 4 0. I mean, Leicester were completely gone by the end. Two, two goals in the last two minutes. Mm. Uh, what I found quite interesting is so watching Liverpool against Leicester a couple of weeks ago, they got really bogged down in central midfield against Mendy and Didi. Whereas I think Howard just pretty much bypassed them, which I thought was quite, quite nicely done. Mm. I think Puel is. Claude Puel should be the favourite to be the next manager to be sacked in the Premier League. Um, really? they're, they're doing okay, but he they've conceded two or more goals in 14 in the last 18 games. He doesn't look capable to organise the defence. The, the accusation at Southampton was that he was too boring, and now it's that he can't keep a clean sheet. And A few people at Leicester were surprised that he didn't lose his job in the summer, so mm. I think they would not be surprised if he loses it very soon. OK, two other games that took place this weekend. Of course, there's still Southampton-Brighton coming up on the Monday night. But meantime, Palace got a win. Zaha came back. Zaha scored. 
Zaha spoke after the game as he well, did, didn't which he? I really liked. There was, was proper raw emotion there. Yeah, yeah, it's refreshing actually yes. to see someone so passionate and so articulate. His in what voice they as raw as his ankles after the treatment meted out to him by Huddersfield. But I, th- I think it's quite topical this weekend because you got a sp- spitting thing and then you got the leg breaking thing. Oh yeah, and what and like, spitting is awful. But he, the the, cha- the tackle on him at the weekend was horrific. I think he just has to get used to this, to be honest. I, I really appreciated his, his sentiment in what he was saying and how forthright and honest he was in his opinion. But I don't think it's going to stop. And I don't think referees are going to change the way in which they officiate because that, you know they don't go out to not give him protection. That's not... Also, not. also because a little bit like, well, I don't know, with Diego Costa, opponents seeing that he can be riled, he can be provoked, will... Yeah, it might actually force it to go the other way. So yeah. he actually gets fouled more as a yeah. result of this. So looking at the stats... Um, he's only played four of the five games so far for Palace. He's been fouled 11 times over the course of the season. Only Madison, Hazard and Will Hughes, surprisingly, have been fouled more. So he is mm. fouled a lot, certainly. But when you see how important he is to Crystal Palace, when you take into account the fact they don't win when he doesn't play and they do when, when he does play, it's no surprise at all that he's a target for opposition teams. Yeah, it's, and, that, and that fact, because they literally get no points... 10 games when he's not involved and they don't score goals with that. I mean, he scored three quarters of all their goals in the Premier League this season. Roy Hodgson, who described as a legend by uh, David Wagner, a living legend. It was a, I'm not sure how I would have felt about that if I was Roy listening to him. He said, I can't believe at 72 he's still managing. Uh, but he said it with a nice smile, David Wagner. But uh, Roy really needs to sort that out, doesn't he? Well, he he, he spoke after the, the, they last lost without him and said... Well, we got to get used to it. Well, yeah, it was it was it was as close to a white flag as you'll get from a Premier League manager. It was saying we know the problem, but the problem has been no secret for a year now, and there's nothing we can do. And him signing that extended contract and, and to all intents and purposes staying for an, at least another two years, they think, is huge, huge news. It, it will keep them in the Premier League. Okay. A little word on Huddersfield stat-wise: they've had 99 shots at home, mm. and of their last 99, one has been a goal. They are in big trouble if, the, if Steve wow. Mounier is their only striker this season, I think. Right. So Huddersfield in big trouble. Burnley are in big trouble. Now bottom of the table. And they had a weekend off. They had a Thursday night off. They still lost this time against a very good Wolves side. But that's one point from five games now for Sean Dyche. 103 shots in five games, according to Duncan Alexander, they've conceded. Which over a 38-game season, that's 783 and the Premier League record since they've been recording it was 737 by Ian Holloway's so Blackpool. So it would break the record. If and that was set by Holloway's like Blackpool, which yeah. is... Yeah. So, um, wow. And this is still largely the same defensive set that used to be the wonder of the Premier League. Yeah, Sean Dice was sort of referring to a cloud of a fog, fog descending on the squad and sort of clouding the judgment and and the way in which they sort of saw themselves and the way they were playing. And we've seen runs like this from Burnley before. Admittedly, maybe it's not been quite this significant with them starting the season this way. He was sort of talking about how it's affected his players, the perception that everyone told them that if they went into Europe, it would then affect the league form, that what they did last year wouldn't be repeated. And that sort of happened. Uh, He said, you know, that can have an effect on his players as well. But the fixtures they've got coming up are a little bit better than perhaps the ones they've had. So we'll see how things settle down in the next few weeks. All right. They have only played one team that finished in the top half last season, though. Oh. Um, and Burnley's Burnley's normal procedure is to take points early and then fall away in the second half of the season. I think 57 and 59% of their points have come in the first half of the season in their two Premier League seasons. And so if they don't start quickly and then... And that's... I mean... The, the general opinion is that they tire in the end of the season with a thin squad. Mm. If that then happens again, 
They are in big trouble. The squad's thicker, though, isn't it? It so is. It'd it be is. interesting to see whether that changes or not. Mm. But. but it's a bit of a worry because I thought they were absolutely humiliated. I mean, it could have been a lot more. It could than have one been a lot more. I think Hart played well, but consider this: same thirty shots mm. in one game, and yeah. I think it's looked pretty 30 bad. Thirty shots. Thirty yeah. shots. Yeah, Joe Hart did have a pretty well. special game. Uh, right. Quick mention here: Johnny and the Buffet Bowler both asking us to take some time. Uh, to mention the sad passing of Ipswich Town's Kevin Beatty at 64, says Johnny, probably one of the finest purveyors of the Thunderbastard, one of the greatest defenders England ever produced, said Sir Bobby Robson. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I I am of an age where I don't remember Kevin Beatty, but if we take Bobby Robson's opinion, he said he was the, the greatest player that British Isles has produced since George Best. Yeah, he kind of then went back on the interview I've seen, he, he kind of goes back and qualifies mm. that, in terms of being... A goal threat as a defender. Liverpool famously came close to signing him and didn't sign him because no one met him at the station. Just went back home. And You're I went kidding. to Ipswich, yeah. Back in, uh, well, so it was under Shankly. So he came to Liverpool. Um, no one met him at Lime Street. So he got back on the train and back to Carlisle and eventually ended up at Ipswich Town. Right. I mean, like you, Daniel, is not a player that I was particularly familiar with. But the gist of a, a lot of the stuff I read is that he would have been right up there had it not been for the injuries, which. Yeah, and also from what they say, one of those players who would have survived in the modern day because he's incredibly physical. The, the the kind of myth around him was that he could head the ball 60 yards, they would say. Wow. Sounds kind of 1870s rather than 1970s, does it? Sounds like really mythical. But but great fun to watch. Thanks, uh, Buffet Bella and Johnny, for f- flagging that up. Uh, the passing of Kevin Beatty. All right, well, Southampton and Brighton coming up Monday evening, so we'll have fun, no doubt, talking about that on Thursday. But before we go, let's get the odds on some of the midweek European games and other business. Producer Ben's been a-chatting with Paddy Power. Thank you very much, Jimbo. I've got Lee Price on the line from Paddy Power. Lee, the Champions League is back and the standout fixture, at least for me, is Liverpool versus PSG. Can we talk about the first goal scorer market here as well as the overall? Yeah, what a corker to come back with. Uh, the goal score market, as you imagine, is very highly competitive. Salah and Cavani, the favourites, are 7 2. Neymar's at 4 1. Marley, 9 2. Firmino and Mbappe, both 5 1. As for overall, we actually favour Liverpool here. They're 11 10. PSG are chunky 2 1. And you've got a money back special running on this one, too, haven't you? Yeah, money back as a free bet Liverpool win, and that applies to losing first, last, eight time goal scorers. Correct score at what odds Paddy Markets? Max refund £10. Let's go over to the Europa League. Uh, Chelsea versus Pauk Salonika. Can you give me the odds on a red card, but no guns being shown in this one? <laughs> yeah, Chelsea odds on to win this game. And a very short price for a red card, actually. Four to one, if you fancy that. All right, let's whiz through a couple of these other European things. Six of these English sides in Champions League and Europa action. Uh, what are the odds on all of them winning? Crikey, yeah. At 21 to 1 for the 16 accumulator. And actually, it's not as mad as it might sound. Four of the teams, Arsenal, Chelsea, City, United, are odds on. Liverpool, the favourites to beat PSG. The only challenge would be Spurs, who are the longest price at 8 to 5 away to winter. Another of the standout ties back in the Champions League PSV, they're up against Barcelona. We've talked about PSV's goal scoring exploits. Can they get a result at Camp Nou? Yeah, you've taught me into liking this one. They are a humongous 25 to 1 to win the game. Even the draw's massive at 10 to 1. Barcelona to win a game of football are one to twelve. And finally, John Terry. Now I hope you're honouring those four to one bets uh, that he wouldn't complete his first season um, at Spartak Moscow. He, of course, is no longer going to turn up for them. But might he sign for either Manu or Derby, joining his old friends Moo and Lamps? Maybe. Um, that bet of him not seeing out in Russia was one to four. Actually, we had two bets on that, and they have paid out. Lucky them, good punt lads. Uh, to join May United, fifty to one. 
to join Derby 5-1 or to rejoin Chelsea as a coach into 2-1 as the favourite now. You can find out these odds and more at paddypad.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. 18 plus only begambleaware.org and when the fun stops, stop. Thursday, the show returns. Listener, with Julian Laurent, ooh, Duncan Alexander, ooh, and James Horncastle. Mm. For now, it's many, many thanks to Sasha Gurionov. Pleasure. Are we actually saying your name right, Sasha? Yes, you are, yes. Good. And Daniel Story. That's correct pronunciation as well. <laughs> yep. And Ian Irving. Thanks, James. And uh, no, thanks to all of you for coming in. It was a, a busy show. Thank you, listener, for staying with us till the end. Keep it totally till Thursday, and we'll see you then. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. And make sure you check out our other football podcasts, the revamped Totally Football League show with Caroline Barker and the brand new Totally Scottish Football Show. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.